0: I'm Luke Simmons. And I'm Seth Trout. Welcome to King Culture.
1: All right, Seth. Well, Merry Christmas, brother.
0: Merry Christmas, Luke. It's you good know, to be here.
1: I can't really uh, do a Christmas thing without thinking about uh, whatever episode it was back in the day. I can't remember.
0: Keeping Christ in Christmas? Is that
1: what we call that? I just remember. <laughs> You talk about, give me Christ Christmas, Merry Christmas. <laughs> Every time I think of it, I laugh. And so it's a good to be doing another episode related to Christmas and the
0: incarnation. Yeah, it's always good for us to remember the tone that Christmas creates, right? That if God moves towards us in the person of Jesus and we're fussy about stuff, we got to kind of rethink our approach. Sure. Yeah. Like, you think about like the, what the incarnation is that is the highest one, the holiest one, taking on this vulnerable form of humanity, the form of a servant. And it just kind of, it really confronts our fussiness <laughs> about uh, the way that people observe or don't observe Christmas. You know, and so so I think it's worth being confronted by the Christmas story mm. uh, more than it is even confronting other people about the Christmas story.
1: Yeah, I mean, it just seems like... Uh you know, there's so many other things that are bombarding us in terms of our attention and our affection and the traditions and the family, but it really is supposed to be a time when um, at least there's a sense of comfort, right? I think of even the announcements on Christmas, good news of great joy for all the people. Um, and of course it's hard and, and there's challenges and there's, you know, memories and there's things that make it difficult. But yeah, that that disposition of Christmas should be
0: one of, uh, oh man, this is this is sweet. Yeah. I think it's uh, interesting how, like the Christmas story has become so familiar to us that we lose sight of how just radical it is. Yeah, Like, I think if you're not a Christian and you hear about God becoming a human, even now, if you're not a Christian, you still have like a category for that. Oh, that's what the Christians think. Or those people think that, like it's a it, there's a category of, it's plausible that people would think that because people have thought that for a long time. Sure. But the idea of God taking on flesh in the first century was brand new. It was unfamiliar territory. Uh, those were psychos who thought that the one without a body could take on a body, that that the eternal, boundless, outside-of-time divine God could become bounded, limited, localized, in a body, be present in history. The one outside of history is coming into history. And so... Yeah, I mean, it,
1: that'd be scandalous. Hard to even imagine. If you could imagine it, you would only imagine it negatively.
0: Yeah, it'd be nonsensical. It, it'd be like saying there's a there's a, uh, a square circle. Right. You know, or, or a blue-green. Like, it just feels like a contradiction in terms. And so it's worth... Well,
1: and, and I would think especially for the Jews. Especially, right? especially for the Jews. for the people who are going like, there's one God... And he is uh, so holy. We're gonna not really even ever say his name, write his name. There's a kind of reverence here, and it's so far awayness that, like, for God to actually become a, a person, like, wow,
0: what? Yeah, yeah, maybe for the Greeks, there was at least a little plausibility because they didn't have like a monotheistic God outside of time, transcendent being. They had all these kind of messy godmen, Hercules type figures who sure. were like, but they're more like divi- divinized humans than they were humanized. Divine yeah. types, yeah, sure. And so it's just worth considering, like the the absolute wackiness of the Christmas story uh, that God takes on flesh, especially in contrast with what God's people, the people to whom Christ first came, were expecting. Yeah. It was not at all what you were expecting. And if you think about like how disappointing life can be, most of the time disappointment comes from expectations. Like you want something, and then what you want, not even just wanting, but expecting something to happen that doesn't happen, it's very disappointing. And so I have a degree of empathy for uh, the Jewish people, especially in the first century, who are like, excuse me, what?
1: Right. Well, and you kind of think like, okay, let me just try to stretch my plausibility structures and go, maybe God could show up. But he'd probably show up as a man. Yeah. Right? (laughs) The idea that he's going to show up as a baby.
0: As a prince or a conqueror. or Yeah, like what? Yeah. And so there's really three big things that the Jews are expecting to happen. If you think about like, so kind of back up a little bit. So the last book of the Old Testament is written. Then there's this period that has been called the 400 years of silence. Mm-hmm. Right. This is the period that a lot of, uh, like there's this, these books that are in Roman Catholic Bibles called the Apocrypha a lot of those books uh, describe some of that intertestamental period, like the time between the Old and the New Testaments. Uh, you get the Maccabees in there, the story of Hanukkah happens in there, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But the the books themselves talk about how there's no prophet. God hasn't spoken to us. Hmm. And so one of the reasons I think uh, the Apocrypha doesn't belong in the Bible is because the way the Apocrypha talks about itself is not as though there are prophets and this is God's word, but it's just history. So, I think the Apocrypha is useful history, but it's not scripture, which is actually what they thought in the first, second, third century. It wasn't until Jerome put it in the Vulgate in the fourth century that it got included in the Roman Catholic Bible anyway. So, but, but you think about this 400 years of silence and this developing expectation throughout the Old Testament that there's going to be a Messiah who will come, there's going to be a covenant keeper who comes. And there are really three uh, uh, kind of like three big things that the Jews are expecting that led to disappointment when <laughs> yeah. Jesus came, right? The the first one is, like, the you think about Psalm 1 uh, and Psalm 2, the way those things function together. These two things together really help us see uh, and shape the, the expectations. That Psalm 2 is seen as this, like, prophetic look at the king who would be enthroned. It's a coronation yeah. psalm uh, that he would— Break the nations with the with the rod of iron and rule them. That there would be like one this powerful political leader who would liberate God's oppressed people and overthrow the regime and establish uh, a, a king, a political power on Earth. And so there's like a political expectation that comes. That doesn't happen, right? Like whatever the opposite of that happens. Yeah, sure. Like you think about the way the people in the gospels are hearing the Jesus story, like from Nazareth, can anything good from, from Nazareth, you know, that's sure. like, that'd be like in Arizona, the equivalence of like, Hey, the next president of the United States is born in Gila Bend, Arizona. <laughs> like, <laughs> sure. Gila Bend, the place with a gas station, like can anything good from Gila come from Gila Bend, you know? And right. so like no, no chance that will the next president of the United States uh, be born in Gila Bend and, go to MCC, you know, that's like, that's, but here you have Jesus. He's yeah. born in Gila Bend and goes to MCC. And they're like, what the heck? And so not only that, but it's like a, a relatively low status family, low income, low power. And his entire approach is the opposite of a political conqueror. Mm-hmm. He, he does not establish a political party or a regime to conquer the current regime
1: and even to the very end, I mean, it seems like the disciples are still trying to figure out, like, when's it going to kick in? You know, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom? Is this when we do this? Uh, And it's like just perpetual disappointment about that.
0: Yeah. And so what Jesus says is my kingdom is not of this world. And that gets misinterpreted all the time to mean saying that my kingdom is somewhere else. Sure. As though it's like on Mars. Okay. Well, (laughs) is it Venus or Mars or Jupiter? You know. Uh, his point is not it's of this world. He mean like the, the that that's called like a, a genitive phrase of this world. Uh, like it, but it means it's of a different substance, a different type. It's not made of the same stuff. So the means by which Christ will establish his kingdom is not the same means by which other kingdoms establish themselves here on earth. Sure. It will not be through popular vote. It will not be through military conquest. It will be, ultimately, through the power of the Spirit in regenerating a new creation uh, through the people being won uh, bit by bit. And so the Jews expect this political uh, prince figure, and what they get is a suffering servant <laughs> who wins hearts and heals the sick and spends time with the marginalized and uh, enjoys proximity to people who uh, the Caesars would never, ever come close to. Yeah. And so the Jews are disappointed. And it's easy to read the Gospels and be like, man, these people are the worst. How are they so, like, not getting it? But if you realize that this expectation has been building for thousands of years. Sure. And there have then been 400 years of silence. And then the second big... Well, I I think
1: even right now, I mean, you know, you have people who, I mean, you just read all the statistics about people's feeling about the direction of the the United States of America, right? Like, wrong track, right track. The wrong track number has been bad. It's been bad for a long time. Right, and, and nobody really thinks that the way that like the way to change the country the way I'd like to see it changed would be through some weakness. <laughs> like, yeah. nobody thinks that, Re- regardless of what you think it ought to be. Right, if you think it should be more of a progressive agenda or more of a MAGA agenda, it doesn't matter. Nobody's like, you know what? Let's 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 get our way through humility. <laughs> like, not yeah. at all. Like, it still makes no sense.
0: Yeah, and that's the not of this world type stuff. Yeah. is is the, the means by which Christ comes is just not what people are expecting or wanting or looking for. And the good thing about Jesus is he doesn't care. Like there's, he's, he's unflappable. He's not thrown off by our expectations. He's not tossed to and fro by public demand. Uh, the polls don't hurt his feelings. He's, he's, yeah. I mean, he cares about us, but he's also not about to change for us. Sure. He's not going to uh, go soft in those ways. And so this like conquering political king becomes uh, someone riding on a donkey and healing the sick and the lame and uh, in spending time with people who have been overlooked and misunderstood. And that's just not what people are expecting. And especially there's the, the next piece, I think, is probably the probably even more disappointing piece because there's you think about like the the means versus the ends. Like, the, that first disappointment is a disappointment of means. The the form and structure and strategy in which he comes is different. Like, the means are different. The other the other disappointment comes to do with the ends, like the goal here. Like, mm, what's the sure. Messiah going to do? Yeah. And this one is even probably my empathy for the Jews is even higher because they're expecting the Messiah to come and once and for all re- end the reign of sin and death on earth.
1: That's not a terrible goal.
0: Not a goal, bad goal at all. Like, <laughs> sure, it's, one thing, it's one thing if you're like, I kind of hey. want that now, too. Yeah, like, it, on the first one, you're like, hey, we shouldn't really, like, be power hungry. That's, you know. and But on the second one, you're like, yeah, I, that's disappointing. Like, you expect the Messiah to come and end the reign of sin and death once and for all.
1: And, and, and what you're saying, I mean, that, that would have been the best, the best, assuming the best of people's yeah. desires, right? I mean, there, there would have been plenty of people in the first century going, I just want to
0: stick it to Rome. Yes, You know,
1: I think, you know, we've been on the bottom end too long. We need to be on top. Yeah,
0: Turn the other cheek, hard past. How about...
1: Yeah, but but at the best case, like the most spiritual people would have gone, we'd like to see the kingdom of God come. Which is probably the
0: majority of Jews at the time. Yeah.
1: And, and, but their sense of it coming would be
0: what? Would be that um, the effects of sin are erased from the earth. Okay. That shalom is reestablished. That the Edenic... Walk with God, capacity to uh, be absent from suffering and death. The line will lay down from the lamb. The swords will be beaten to plowshares. Like, we'll all get to do the garden project without sin that Adam and Eve had a shot at doing. And uh, cancer gone, Uh, stillbirth children gone, Uh, premature death gone. Like, all of the effects of sin and death, they're thinking the Messiah will come. And, and all this stuff.
1: Well, and for a while, especially in Jesus' ministry, he, it seems like that's kind of the track he's on, right? I mean, he's going everywhere and saying the kingdom of God is at hand. And he's doing all these things that are eradicating, right? He's eradicating demons from demon-possessed people. And he's eradicating death from 12-year-old girls who have died. And he's eradicating death. Uh, he's eradicating sickness from women who have been bleeding forever. And he's eradicating hunger for people who are sitting there listening to his sermons, right? So like, it feels like, oh man, momentum is building. Here you go. Like this is it. Like he's he's doing it. And then he says, Okay, bye. Well then he says, Hey, I'm gonna go to Jerusalem and uh I'm gonna be handed over and die. they're gonna kill me. They'll kill me, yeah. Right. And Peter's answer is, you know, may it never be. Yeah. Like, no, no way, Jesus, you're not you're not you're missing the point here. You're you're drifting, Jesus. And then Jesus
0: calls him Satan and says, yeah. Get behind me.
1: Yeah, so I mean, it gives you, like you're saying, a little more sympathy for Peter's perspective. Like, it's not just like, hey man, Peter's always being an idiot. It's like, wait a minute,
0: like, I thought this was headed in a direction and it seems like you're changing it. Yeah, if you imagine never having read the New Testament and then you read the Old Testament and then you read the gospel for the first time and you see Peter, you're like, you're probably thinking and feeling like Peter. Mm, Yeah. Let's get the swords. Let's get these Romans out of here. Uh, We're going to die? Yeah, no thanks. The Messiah is here. We're going to kill all our enemies. Sure. Um, And that piece of that what happens is instead of uh, bringing about the end of one kingdom and the beginning of another, he facilitates what theologians call like the overlap of the ages, that the kingdom of God is at hand, it is inaugurated, uh, and the kingdom of sin and death still goes on. And so if you, instead of thinking about like two circles that just have uh, a point of connection, it's two, it's a Venn diagram situation yeah. that the reign of sin overlaps with the reign of Christ in the kingdom. And we're in this really mixed bag reality where we have a foretaste of the coming kingdom. The spirit is at work and alive, working in response to our prayers, building the church, the gates of hell will prevent it. Uh, there's a sense in which Satan is bound. We're plundering the household uh, plundering his household, Christ talks about binding the strong man, replundering his house. So there is a sense in which death has been defeated in the incarnation and death of Jesus, but there's still the last enemy to be overthrown, which is death itself, which will happen the second coming of Jesus.
1: And what's your best explanation for the rationale, like why? I mean, obviously God owes us no answer; He can do what He wants, you know. But if it's like, okay, God, like why use this like? slow roll process versus just get it done. Cause, cause you read the end of the story. I mean, you read revelation, you go, it is that that is the ultimate goal is that this yeah. is sin and death being eradicated from the earth and all things being made new. Like why, why stage it this way? Do we have a sense scripturally of like, what's God's thought there?
0: So this is uh, speculative. Obviously there's no verse where the delaying of things, uh, one of my like my teaching pastor when I was in uh, college, he would say that God is in the work of uh, populating His kingdom, like that. If he he has a goal for how many people he wants in His kingdom, and so that requires ongoing procreation over the centuries before God can fill the whole earth with His with His faithful image bearers, right? And so, his argument was that because uh, the Father is going to give the bride to the son at the end of history, he's working on that being a full big gift hmm. and he's still popular in the kingdom. That's number one. Number two, this is more an aesthetic thing is it like you watch shows on Netflix or Apple or Amazon. And it's like, if the whole season releases and you could watch episode one and then skip to episode 10 and watch it. Oh, now I know how it ends. I feel better. Mm-hmm. It's like yeah, but what makes the story a good story is episodes two through nine Sure. That, that God is an artist. He's a, like the first thing we see of him is he's creative. He's creating. And that in the writing of complex, layered, tension filled, character driven stories, God's the best storyteller ever. And he's revealing his creativity and beauty and majesty somehow through this ongoing, unfolding story. Uh, well, and that makes yeah. me
1: think too of the other thing God's doing is he's trying to reveal who he is. Yes. Right? And so um, it's not just that God wants to win. God wants to be known yeah, and and enjoyed. And so, like, there's really big parts of who God is that you don't see unless you see his sacrifice, unless you see his uh, death, unless you see his humility, um, unless you see his patience. Uh, So uh, maybe that's part of it as well.
0: Yeah, the same reason he created in the first place was to reveal himself. Yeah. That the reason he delays final judgment and the reason he delays second coming is he's revealing himself. That there's a story being told that helps you get to know the author of that story in a way. That if that story's not told, you don't get to know that author. Yeah. Right? You don't know anything about Dostoevsky if he doesn't write stories. Sure. And in the same way, if God doesn't create, he, he can't be known. If he doesn't write stories, he can't he can't be known. And so that's just the nature of people outside of God That's how it works. Uh, and, and so the other point of disappointment that they would have had is just that this idea of like a spiritual kingdom. Yeah.
1: Like so G- so they'd have been disappointed in the means, you know, like hey, yeah, this that, is going to happen that he comes weakness. gentle and lowly. They'd be disappointed in the goal, right? That it's not going to just eradicate it once for all, but we're going to live in this
0: overlap. Yeah. And And that and then they'd be disappointed in what was it? Did you say? I'm gonna call it the spirituality. Okay. The spirituality of this is like Jews were very historically this worldly oriented people Mm -hmm. and this Holy Spirit would come upon people in the Old Testament to equip them to lead. Uh, But this whole idea of like the, the Holy Spirit working on people's hearts and like this in the world, not of the world dynamic and this Christ ascending to the father and ruling from the heavenly Jerusalem like all of this is kind of like wild to the well,
1: Jews. And even the kind of like Jesus, the fulfillment of the law, yeah, right. So like we now don't have to live under the Old Testament Mosaic law, which, right in the Jewish understanding, would have been like, well, the only way we'd know what your heart is is how you do your laws, yeah. And Jesus goes, "No, I fulfilled that," and so
0: yeah, it's a great picture. Love, love
1: one another. It's like, wait a minute, that's way less tangibly visible, in some ways, than like well. How far did you walk on Saturday?
0: Absolutely, yeah. And you think about some of, like, the more minute laws. Like, don't um, sow two types of seed in the same field or don't make a fabric with two types of uh, ingredients on it. And you think, like, what the heck was the point of that stuff? But, like, the, the Jews understood that as, like, totally reasonable uh, control of a people who are trying to be light to the nations— that they would be distinct. And part of it was like the laws were meant to form the people into their sense of identity. And so the reason you don't have two fabrics woven together in the same uh, garment uh, is because that's meant to be a picture of the Jews don't intermingle with the Canaanites. Yeah. You, we don't marry foreign women, not because we're xenophobic, but because foreign women worship Baal, and we're trying to not worship Right, and so, so like these laws that were meant to set them apart as distinct people. uh, Christ comes and says, "All right, that's no longer what makes you distinct people. What makes you distinct people is the power and presence of the Holy Spirit in your life." They're like, "Well, how do you measure and test that?" Sure. Like you can't. You can see. I don't uh, do two seeds in the same field. I can see that. Sure. I can check the box on faithful, not faithful. But how do I see? And so it's the evidence is uh, that you are characterized by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit and its uh, conformity to the way of Jesus. And so it ends up being like this less tangible, less earthy, more spiritual reality. And the Jews would have said not, they're not on board with that. That's why they, when Jesus comes and he's healing people on the Sabbath and they're like, whoa, 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 what's going on here? we have a few basic rules and that's one of them you're breaking. And Jesus says the law was not made for man. Hmm. I mean, the man was not made for the law, but the law for man. Yeah, And th- that's like wildly backwards to how the Jews are thinking about it. like, no, the laws were made like we were made to obey these so that people can know who we are compared to other people. And so Jesus is already kind of fudging the boundaries there. And so the spirituality of those things hmm. would have been wild. And I think it's, Important for us to read the gospels, read the Christmas story, and not roll our eyes with smug judgment at the people who are not getting what Jesus is doing. Because uh, I I think if you really are empathetic to where they've been being formed for a while, you're like, "Ooh, that's a that's not what they're expecting." And Christ is here to surprise people. Yeah. And so I think even as we celebrate and practice Christmas, the shocking nature of it like the wildness of god takes on flesh it's not like 2000 years ago people were just knuckle draggers and believed anything that happened like they also were like yeah nope god did not take on flesh this is weird nope that's not what i was expecting the end of the world would be like and so that's so they would like their expectations actually gave them clogged up ears mm. and so our neighbors and friends who are think like no if god would come to earth he wouldn't do it like that we can say yeah you know who else thought that all the Jews. Sure. All the people to whom Jesus actually came. Yeah. Like, you're actually not alone in thinking, nope, if God came to earth, he wouldn't do it like that. Or God wouldn't come to earth. Or, like, the the uh, the pro- the pushback that our friends and neighbors have yeah. is pretty similar to the pushback that would have happened in the first century. Like, we're more like them than we are not like them.
1: Well, it would be pretty funny if the Lord who came in humility, uh, if our understanding of that led us to feel smug... <laughs> Yeah.
0: Be like, uh, are you? Are we missing it here? I think yeah. we might be missing the point. Yeah. All these idiots don't see what I see, which is that Christ loves idiots. Be <laughs> a little backwards. Yeah. yeah, sure. But that makes me think about even just the way the different groups of the Jews were waiting, right? Because they're all waiting. And sure. I think this is part of the message of Christmas is, come thou long-expected Jesus. Like, there's this long expectation for waiting, and the way that different people end up waiting it's pretty similar to the way Christians end up waiting now. Because we're now, if you think about first Christmas, Jesus came as a baby. Second Christmas, Jesus' second coming will be the time when he comes, like kind of book of Revelation, and he does a, a handful of the things that the Jews are expecting him to do, just delayed.
1: Well, and it is this approach to waiting that kind of helps explain this whole new category of people, right? Because like you read the Old Testament and it's like there's the Jews, right? And you have the prophets and you have the kings, but it's like the Jews. Then you, right, like you said, there's this 400 years of silence, the intertestamental period. You open up the New Testament, you're like, wait a minute, there's all these groups now. There's Pharisees and Sadducees and Zealots and Essenes. And like, who are these people? Like, what are these factions? Why, where do they come from? And how come I haven't heard of them before? And a lot of how they emerged really
0: related to this question of like, what are you expecting in terms of the kingdom to come? Yeah. And I think there's some pretty interesting parallel to like groups of Christians now and how we are like wait, functionally trying to wait with faithfulness for Christ's return and how the Jews are doing it in that intertestamental period. And so, uh, let's talk about those four groups and we can maybe pontificate on parallels here. So the first group to me is the most obviously bad group. The other three, I have some, like, uh, I see what they're doing there Mm -hmm. and I can get it. The Sadducees are the sell-your-guts group. Hmm. They go full compromise. They um, demythologize the faith. They minimize or right away r- miracles. They don't believe in the resurrection f- from the dead. I had friends who went to Valley Christian High School, and the way they were taught about the Sadducees was they were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. The right, sad, sure. Sadducees. There it is. But they were the, uh, the ones who got into bed with Rome, political establishment. They... Uh, made their faith tame so that it could be compatible with Romanism. Yeah. That like when I think about them I think about like the mainline liberal Protestants. Like they are making their faith into like a civil religion. They're domesticating it and helping their faith come right under uh American popular ideologies. And yeah, so sure. it's that's the Sadducees. Mm-hmm. And so that form of waiting would be analogous to just compromise.
1: Well, but it's interesting, even as you think about that, because obviously, when you talk about the mainline churches, you're you're talking about that same kind of thing. Um, when you, but but if you think about it more politically, right? Because that is what they're doing is they're selling out their religious identity, their spiritual identity, for the sake of political alignment and power. Yeah, you, you see both conservatives and progressives doing that. Yeah. Now, I mean, so if you if you zoom it out, like right, like there is a you know you can be a non-Christian by Aligning with progressive ideology for the sake of power, uh, or you can be a non-Christian aligning with, you know, whatever version of conservatism, populism is for the sake of power, um, and oftentimes kind of cloak it in like religious language, for sure. You know, but uh, so so that's interesting because I I do think it's like theologically of the Sadducees being like theological liberals, but in a sense they're they're kind of like anybody who's willing to compromise some of the core parts of the faith in order to have and maintain power.
0: Yeah. If, if you look at to the political lens, it's just people using, willing to like use vague, fluffy spiritual language in a way that makes everybody feel like, sure, I could get on board with that. Yeah. Uh, if you look at theologically, they are theological liberals. Um, yeah. The The next group would be the zealots, which are kind of like, the least organized, which is not super shocking, but they're kind <laughs> sure. of like the uh the wild childs of the of the jews uh you know they even had like a group within them called the sikari the dagger men who would off their political opponents they're they're the most willing to use violence to do their thing right so
1: which makes sense if you're going all right, this is a physical kingdom that involves you know like uh military might overcoming darkness. Like,
0: okay. Yeah. And out of the ranks, a handful of like false messiahs emerged. Yeah. Like self-appointed messiahs were like join my uh, uh, militia and let's sure. And it was very unsuccessful. would be an understatement, would be an understatement. Yeah. Uh, but the zealots, like they're, you think about Simon the zealot, you know, and, and versus like the tax collector and like, they're kind of like the tax collectors would be more of the Sadducee group. Yeah. And the zealots would be, and more of the, uh, we should kill the tax collectors because they're <laughs> selling their soul, Sure, right? And uh, the thing that disgusted the Zealots the most was the Sadducees, not even the Romans. Yeah. It was, you all are an abomination to the name mm-hmm. of Yahweh, or Adonai, what they would say. And so, like, the infighting picture you get here is pretty clear. Uh, the If the Sadducees were, like, the the compromising progressives, the Zealots were probably those who are willing to compromise faithfulness for power Mm. um, probably like would be to me like the wackiest batch of Christian nationalists. Okay. You know, yeah. some people who say they're Christian nationalists, what they mean is we love Christ and we love our nation. And if that's what you mean by that, then that's not a tough sell for me. But if you mean like sacrifice faithful means for the sake of bringing about an earthly kingdom through military violence, Mm. then I feel like, okay, now we've lost the, we've lost the plot here and we're doing, Zealot Sakari Daggerman stuff that Christ rebukes a ton in yeah. his deal. And so, uh, but there's I'm at least empathetic more to the zealots than the Sadducees because they at least believe in the authority of God. Yeah, <laughs> and are, sure. And are trying to, with fear and trembling, submit to him. Now I think they're doing it in a way that's unfaithful, but nonetheless, there's still like a sense of we are set apart by God to be a distinct people and this Kind of mushy, fluff together thing the actually are doing, hard selling that. So there is that. Then the 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 next group would be uh, the Essenes. These are the uh, go to the desert people. Mm-hmm. They're like, man, this society is corrupt and bonkers. We're out of here. Yeah, kind of John the Baptist vibes. Yeah, they're like, we we're trying to be faithful, and this society makes it virtually impossible to be faithful. So we're gonna exit society. We're gonna go. Out to the desert and wait for the Messiah to come out here. Yeah, we're going to write the
1: scripture now. I mean, this is where we get if people have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Yeah, I mean, that almost certainly uh, that area was a group of Essenes, people who went. You know what? We got to get out of the out of the worldliness of Jerusalem. We got to get out into the desert. We're going to copy scripture. We're going to record this, right? And and uh, yeah, praise God for that.
0: Yeah, and and so the next the group the fourth group the Pharisees the. we'll talk about them next obviously, but the Pharisees were staying in Jerusalem and the Essenes saw even that, like if you're going to stay there, maybe you don't care about holiness enough. Like they were so preoccupied with holiness that they like, and they took separateness, uh, not as a moral category, but, uh, as like almost like a necessary physical category. Like we must literally separate ourselves and go over there instead of being over here. And so they, they go to the desert and they care about the scriptures and they write the scriptures like in, in modern terms, like some of the Anabaptists would be similar to this, or even like the instinct that a lot of Christians have to go like, San Francisco's tough. I'm out. See you in Queen Creek, Arizona. You yeah, know, that's sure. That's an Essene instinct. You know, I don't want to raise my kids in that environment, I'll raise my kids in this environment. And at some point I know some folks who are like, Queen Creek is too blue. I gotta have to go to Boise, Iowa. You know, so so <laughs> yeah. there's or see, so that that's an Essene instinct. This is the uh, we in the name of protecting and preserving the next generation. We will leave this um, hostile area if we're able to. And so the Essenes uh, step out. And so to some degree, if the goal of the Jewish people was to be a light to the nations, that requires some proximity to the nations to be seen as a light, to be seen as a distinct people. And so that's where I think some of that um, could go wrong. But the Essenes were not... uh, like, I have a hard time labeling the scenes as, like, not great. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, they're pretty, they're trying to love the Lord. Mm-hmm. And that fourth group, the Pharisees, who get a really bad rap in the New Testament in particular, uh, the reason that they get a bad rap is because they're not totally getting what Jesus is doing. Mm-hmm. And they see him as, like, the the Pharisees went the way of holiness not by doubling down on distant separation, but by doubling down on strict observance of the law. Yeah. That The Lord has given us this law. We will obey it in detail all the way without exception. And so they are adding to the laws to kind of create buffer room around obedience to the laws. It'd be like if someone saw the speed limit was 45 miles an hour and they said, you know what? To be safe, I'm going to drive 35 miles an hour. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, I'm so nervous about going 46 miles an hour that I'm not going 45. I'm going 35.
1: Yeah. And. Yeah, this was when I was in college. uh, You know, we would. You'll be leaving for a game. I played for the Fighting Illini, and, and there was a Illini time and a Illini time. You know, if we were, if we were leaving at eight, a Illini time was seven fifty. You know, ten minutes early, and it got ridiculous. I mean, it got to the point where eventually, if like I come down to the lobby at like seven thirty three, I'd be like the last guy there, and they'd be like, "Why are you late?" I'm like, "I'm twenty seven minutes early." What do you right? And then we'd go to the ballpark and just sit there for a half hour, and be like this is your stupid alignment time, you know? Yeah. But it's like, it just gets earlier and earlier. And yet on the other hand, like, I mean, gosh, like like you said, they get a bad rap, but uh, I don't know. It seems like these are folks trying to take God really seriously and do what he wants. Like,
0: don't we need more of that? And frankly, if I had to pick which of these four groups to be a part of, going back, I'd probably pick to be a Pharisee. Yeah. I'm like, they're trying to be a light in the midst of the city carefully observing God's law and like the, the main like criticism I'd have of them is they're not doing a great job folding people into the people of God. They're not really evangelistic. They're not really inviting like the people to flock to the temple. Well, Well,
1: it maybe starts being about God, but it becomes eventually being about you. Yeah. Right. Because it is about how well you're doing and how you compare to other people and, you know, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like those people, and that instinct that develops is is where it starts to get ugly. And, and I think th- that's the danger of you know anybody who starts off really intending well to follow the Lord, as you can, you know, you can drift toward that Pharisee uh, legalistic spirit. It's you know, Larry Osborne has this really good book called The Accidental Pharisees or Accidental Pharisee, and his point is, he, he says, you know, becoming a Pharisee is like eating dinner at Denny's. Uh, yeah. Nobody means to; you just end up there. <laughs> Yeah, and like no one try, no one wants to become legalistic. No one wants to become, you know, just suck the joy out of everything and miss the point. Um, but you, if you are not careful, you just drift there.
0: Yeah, and what usually begins is like honor the Lord, raise my children faithfully, becomes this. Anybody who smells like sin has to stay away from me, which ends up creating like a smug disposition. Yeah, like probably just like Illini time. What begun, what begins as a we will not be late ever period becomes this who can get there the soonest thing, which <laughs> right. is just a foolish waste of time. Yeah. And so Well
1: and then the guys would get on my case. Hey, you're not you weren't here. Why are you late? And it's like That's not the rule. I'm so early and yet you've already started judging me because that's just the nature of what happens is you you know, you again you start to do it for the right reasons and then you start to do it to feel superior to other people.
0: Well and that's why I think legalism is rarely a doctrinal position. Hmm. Like almost Like I don't know any Christian churches that teach be a good person to go to heaven. Like I don't. I'm sure that hypothetically exists, but even like the Mormons don't say that. (laughs) Sure. You know. I'm like, no, great. You know. Like, but legalism is usually a cultural reality more than as a doctrinal reality. Is this kind of if you want to be a part of us, you have to be like this dynamic that is going beyond the laws of God, beyond the word of God, beyond the scriptures. Mm. And that's where I think like it's important for us as pastors and as church leaders of various stripes to recognize that like we can't bind the conscience beyond the word of God. Otherwise we're adding to the words of God and we're the very people that are rebuked in the book of revelation. They're saying, if you add to this, uh, all the judgments will be brought on you. Yeah. And so I think it's important for us to see those different instincts. And so if there's a group, the Pharisee, like if there's a group that are going to be like the Pharisees, it's probably, um, redemption gateway, Ironwood church. Yeah. Like, uh, we're tempted to like take God seriously to the, to the degree that makes us not functionally love our neighbors. Yeah. And it begins with a good instinct and it ends up being like this kind of weird cultural, uh, policing rather than like honoring the Lord. Mm -hmm. And so, I think it's important for us to understand some of the pitfalls of how God's people have waited for the Messiah in the past, because that's what we're doing now. We are now in a season of waiting and working, uh, not unlike the 400 years of silence in between Malachi and Matthew, but now we're in this, uh, apart from the work of the spirit and speaking through the word, 2000 years of silence in between the resurrection of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And so we're waiting also. And so, it's worth seeing both the folly and the wisdom in these various approaches to waiting and seeing the different temptations because they're not altogether different. Like yeah. Christians will become Christian Sadducees, Christian Pharisees, Christian Essenes, and Christian Zealots. And uh, it's worth like self-policing on some of that and saying, which one am I most tempted to be and what's the folly there or the unfaithfulness there and doing our, doing our heart work to repent of some of that. Yeah, that's good.
1: Yeah, I uh, I think that um, it's just really an interesting thing. I mean, you think this Advent, right? Advent is like we look back to the first coming in anticipation of the second coming. Essentially what you're saying is let's look back at the first way that people waited so that we can be more faithful as we wait now. Um, so I'm curious if, if those are the kind of four, op- like I don't think we're saying those are the four options. I think we're saying those are the four common ways people do it.
0: Probably the four big buckets, yeah.
1: What would be... A fifth way, <laughs> or more of the way of Jesus, like what would be um, what would be the way to wait?
0: I think it's probably something that's a fusion of, especially the scenes in the Pharisees, like faithfulness and holiness as like the central driving impulse, um, but with the real walk with the limp evangelism that invites people with a degree that says anybody can get in on this. Like, I think that the main pitfall of the Essenes was the lack of instinct for evangelism. And the, that's kind of what's made John the Baptist. So weird is he's out there doing evangelism. Like, what's this guy doing? Announcing, like telling people to repent and come to come to know the Lord. Like that's, it's worth writing down. Cause this guy's not, this guy's doing what nobody else was doing. Right. And so I think, the John the Baptist as the scene with evangelistic impulses and evangelistic fervor is probably looking similar to what we're trying to be as a people. Like, I think that even the zealots, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm against trying to establish the kingdom through violence, but there's like a shrewdness innocence of doves thing that there's something there that like Paul ap- appeals to his Roman citizenship for like justice. That was as we try to seek the welfare of the city. So like, uh, again, the zealots were zealous for God's law. That was their thing. That just also meant that they were zealous to, like, hack off the arms of the people who weren't zealous for God's law. Uh, and, like, even, like, the way the Sadducees are saying, like, hey, earthly political power can be used for good. Yeah, uh, We want, actually, like, power is actually not bad, and if we can get it, and then we can use it to promote human flourishing. And so if you're willing to run for office without selling your guts and compromising on your faith, then there's an aspect, there's a kernel of truth in the Sadducees that's there as well, as long as you don't compromise your faith in order of, of trying to gain influence. And so I think there's probably somewhat a mashup of all four, um, but the biggest lacking thing in all of them is the Israel's call to be a light to the nations, that they're blessed to be a blessing, and they failed to do that evangelistic task on the whole, all four of them.
1: Well, and the other thing they all have in common is when Jesus actually showed up, they missed it. They didn't see it. Like yeah. and so some of it is like, um, I think you can so fall in love with the idea of a future kingdom that you forget the king. Mm. You know, and so some of it is like, um, that that's the joy right now as as in this waiting in a way that's different than how they were waiting, was we actually have the presence of God by the spirit. Mm. Right. And so if you're neglecting the spirit the presence of God by the spirit now in order to someday have the presence of God, you're kind of, again, it's, it's a missing the point. And so it is kind of a, I think a lot of it is to go, Hey, yeah, we want the kingdom, but, but more than that, we want the King and we're going to live dialed into him, connected to him, walking with him, empowered by him. Um, And that really seems to be such an important part of how we wait.
0: Absolutely. And that's one of the Christmas things that is, I think, heart wrenching now is that secular humanism is fallen in love with the kingdom and is all triggered and put off by the king. Yeah. And rather than casting a vision for a utopia, in an earthly sense, we cast a vision for a new creation hmm. that is the king comes back yeah. and we get to be with him. And that's the, the heartbeat of Christmas is God comes close yeah. and stays close. Yeah. And there's an even greater way which will come close in the future and we will walk with him in the garden, like Adam did, forever.
1: Yeah. Well, man, I think that's such a great way to finish this year of the King Culture podcast, right? I mean, this was a a year where we uh, looked at Revelation, we looked at this, you know, coming of Christ that uh, we anticipate and how to prepare for that and be faithful for that, and then you know, we close out the year with Christmas. And I think that the the mixture of those two is a great way to finish. So, uh, thanks for uh, thanks for sharing with us. It, uh, other last thoughts, Seth.
0: Merry Christmas, everybody.
1: Yeah, all right. Well, Merry Christmas, and uh, we'll keep Christ at Christmas, and we'll see you guys next year.